If you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah. If you prefer to work with a smartphone or a tablet, go for it. We're in a series in this short book. Um, Jonah is a biographical account of a man who's deeply religious, but is far from God. Uh, He's a man who, as we start to peel back the layers, has some pretty dysfunctional attitudes that result in some dysfunctional behaviors. And it results in a man who is um, out of touch with the mission of God. Uh, Last time we looked at the first chapter and we uh, saw from that chapter that Jonah has in his head a category labeled those people. And we know this by uh, looking at Jonah's response to God's call to go to Nineveh in Assyria. When he receives the call, he turns 180 degrees in the opposite direction without hesitation, flees from that mission that God had given to him. The question the reader is left with is why? Why would Jonah disregard a direct command from God? And the way in which the narrative is written leaves us on the edge of our seats until chapter 4 to answer that question. And we saw from that that Jonah is running from Nineveh. He's running away from God, not because he's afraid of what the Ninevites will do to him. He's running out of hate. He despises these dirty pagans. He has a category in his head reserved for those people. And we looked at how Jonah has become this way and how anybody becomes this way, ultimately by minimizing his own sin, our own sin, and underappreciating God's grace. The moment we do that, we create a category in our heads for those people. Uh, In today's text, we're going to see another aspect to a version of the religiosity that Jonah is practicing that's ultimately dysfunctional. And it's one that we need to detect in ourselves, expose it, and expel it. So let's read. I'm going to pick it up in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. That's where the first fish tale started. How huge was it, Jonah? And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. From this text, we're going to take a look at God's way with religious rebels. 
religious rebel's way with God and Jesus' way with religious rebels. First, God's way with religious rebels. Now, at the conclusion of chapter 1, when we've come to see Jonah's true colors, some of us may look at him and think, well, you know what, it wouldn't be so bad if he drowned. But that's not God's way with this religious rebel. Verse 17 says the Lord appointed, the Lord provided, more literally means the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. It's if God scoured the seas, spotted the fish he wanted, and said, you, go pick him up. The winds and waves obey him, so do the sea creatures. The reason this is significant is that when we look at Jonah, the fact that he's a racist, the fact that he's an ethnocentrist, we can quickly put him into a category in our heads reserved for those people. The moment we've done that, we share in his guilt. And a vicious cycle is perpetuated. That's not God's way with this racist. That's not God's way with this ethnocentrist. God has compassion on him. He's flailing about in the sea, perhaps miles from shore. He's not going to survive. God saves him through a fish. God has compassion. He has mercy on this religious rebel. That should be an encouragement to us. As, uh, as I have bathed in this book, I have become more aware than ever of my own propensity to label somebody as one of those people. And those categories aren't drawn along racial lines only. We can look at those in a different socioeconomic class and label them one of those people. We can look at their educational attainments and draw the lines along those and label them as one of those people. We can look at their personalities and label them as one of those people. If our thoughts were written on our foreheads about what we really think about certain individuals, we would probably be embarrassed to reveal to those around us just how often we gravitate toward labeling somebody and putting them in a category. Of those people. So when I look at God's compassion on Jonah, I'm grateful for that because I see myself in him. But that's not the only thing God does with Jonah. That's not the only tactic God employs with religious rebels. Yes, it's merciful, it's compassionate, but there's something else happening here. Think about it this way. If God can appoint a fish to come pick up Jonah, couldn't he have appointed another ship? Why a fish? Why do it this way? It's kind of odd. It's kind of strange. It's, it's the uniqueness of the story that ends up on the wallpapered rooms of nurseries around the globe. But why this way? This is a case in point where it can be a good thing to, to let the New Testament help us interpret the old. 
In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is referring to being in the tomb. So the question is, why is Jesus in a tomb? Who put him there? There are lots of answers to that, but certainly on the top of that list should be, well, we did. Our sin did. The cross of Christ is a demonstration of God's justice against sin. Jesus is in a tomb because he's getting what we deserve. Why is Jonah in the belly of the fish? Who put him there? Well, he did. His sin brought this about. Jesus is in a tomb because of our sin. Jonah's in the belly of a fish because of his sin. Jonah in the belly of a fish is both God's mercy and compassion because he doesn't drown, and it's God's justice and discipline against Jonah's sin because God could have made this a whole lot more pleasurable for him than a fish. This is not a pleasurable experience for Jonah. There's no cell service in this fish. There's no big screen TV and no lazy boy. I can't imagine that this was something he treasured. Maybe in context he did, kind of. God didn't make this easy for him. God's way with religious rebels is one of mercy and justice simultaneously. And it comes to an experience that is offering un, off, off, un, often unpleasant. A few weeks ago, we looked at the story of Job, um, a story about innocent suffering. But innocent suffering isn't the only kind of suffering there is. The Bible is very nuanced in its um, approach to suffering. It has multiple categories for it. Certainly, innocent suffering is among those, but that's not, what, that's not what Joan is going through here. Sometimes God will bring suffering into our lives to wake us up and discipline us. Writer of Hebrews touches on this. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God's way with religious rebels is to sometimes bring hardship into our lives as a form of discipline, the purpose of which to wake us up and to bring about righteousness in our lives. So the hardship you're facing now, is it innocent suffering like Job? Or is it something along the lines of what Jonah's going through? I can't answer that for you. Nobody else can answer that for you. That's ultimately something you have to wrestle with God in prayer over. God's way with religious rebels is not to wash his hands of us, but it's also not to let us off the hook completely. He approaches us with both mercy and and justice. Second, let's take a look at the religious rebel's way with God. Now, Jonah is a biographical account of a man who's deeply religious but far from the heart of God. 
One way that Jonah demonstrates this is through his racism, through his ethnocentrism, but another way he demonstrates this is actually through his prayer. The bulk of chapter two is a prayer that Jonah prays from within the belly of the fish. And it shows us what the prayer life of a religious rebel looks like. I wanna draw out three aspects to the prayer life of a religious rebel. Three aspects from Jonah's prayer to the prayer life of a religious rebel. First, a religious rebel's prayer life heats up only during times of distress. Verse two, in my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help and he listened to my cry. Verse seven, he says, when my life was ebbing away I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Now, in the context of the flow of the story, why is Jonah praying now? Jonah, let me ask you something. God's call comes to you clear as day to go to Nineveh and call out against it. Why not pause in that moment to pray there? Why not pray on your way to Nineveh, not running from it, asking God to be with you as you engage in this mission he's called you to? Why are you praying now? In chapter one, you were trying to get away from him. Twice in the first four verses, we're told, Jonah, that you're trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. So why are you, why are you calling on him now? Something wrong, Jonah? Well, he's lost control of the situation. And he lacks the power to change it. He needs God to do that for him. Jonah is a religious man living in rebellion against God. A religious rebel's prayer life heats up only during times of distress. If you want to conduct a very convicting litmus test of where you are on the religion gospel spectrum, take a look at your prayer life. If my prayer life heats up only during times of distress, when I desperately need God to do something for me, I'm following in Jonah's footsteps. A religious person's prayer life heats up only during times of distress because when I can't control things, I need God to do that for me. We'll look at why this is the case in a minute. Second, religious rebels' prayer life is consumed with alleviating personal pain. Um, one of the, the best things I think Chap Clark talked about last week was actually a parenthetical statement when he was talking about the way in which we read the Bible. He talked about the importance of slowing down to pause over every sentence, every phrase. When you do that with Jonah's prayer, it's striking. Much of it is consumed with describing his predicament. The current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. The engulfing waters threatened me. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. He even takes time to mention the seaweed that's wrapped around his head. He's preoccupied with his predicament. And he takes large, 
the number of words he uses in his prayer, much of it is consumed with describing his predicament. Nothing in his prayer indicates that he's searching for the reason for his predicament. We know from chapter one that God is trying to do something in and through this situation. He's trying to wake Jonah up. He's trying to accomplish something in Jonah's life through his experience, but nothing in his prayer indicates Jonah is searching for what that is. He's looking at the seaweed in front of his face, and that's as far as it goes. This is quintessential of religious prayer. We pray for deliverance from the pain, but don't often ask God to show us what he's trying to get us to see in and through the pain. We stare at the circumstances that are right in front of our face, but we don't look at the hand of God that's behind it. Third, A religious rebel's prayer life omits searching for and confessing personal sin. Now, there are a lot of pastors and scholars who look at Jonah 2 and see it as a prayer of genuine confession and repentance. I'm not trying to pick a fight with them. I'm not. I just don't see it. I don't see it. Primarily because there's something conspicuously missing. He never mentions his disobedience. He never mentions the fact that God called him to do something and now he's doing the opposite of that. He never mentions that he's in open rebellion against this God. Not a word of it. There's absolutely no soul searching or self-examination going on in this prayer. Let me give you an example of a prayer that has soul searching in it. Stands in contrast to Jonah's prayer, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, test me, and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Jonah's not asking for any of this. He's not asking God to search his heart, to know his thoughts to examine him for grievous ways. Jonah's prayer is not a prayer of genuine confession. It's the prayer of a religious rebel. These three characteristics typify not gospel prayer, but religious prayer. The prayer life of a religious rebel heats up only during times of distress. It's consumed with alleviating personal pain, and it omits self-examination. Why? Why? Why are these characteristics not of gospel prayer, but religious prayer? Why? Imagine a stereotypical and outrageously simplistic plot line to a movie or a story wherein a beautiful woman falls in love with a very wealthy but ordinary looking man. They get married. Throughout their marriage, she manages her behavior in such a way as to maximize the financial perks of being the wife of a wealthy man. She figures out what she needs to do in order to open up her husband's financial spigot. 
When he's turned it off to a trickle, she cozies up to him. When, when he's opened it wide open, she hardly ever interacts with him. Now, why this vacillation? She didn't marry him to get him. She married him for his money. She manages her relationship with him in such a way as to maximize the reason she married him. A religious person marries God for his money. To get a comfortable life. To get God to bless them. When, when a religious person's life is going well, there's no prayer life. Because when, when life is going well, I don't need to God, do any, to God to do anything for me. I'm okay. When the wealthy husband has given his wife full reign over the bank accounts and credit cards, there's no need to interact with him any more than is necessary to keep things open financially. When the blessings dry up and I can't fix it myself, my prayer life kicks into gear. And my prayers are consumed with getting the blessings flowing again, all the while still ignoring a relationship with this God. Because ultimately, I married him for what he can do for me, not because I find him intrinsically valuable and desirable. My relationship isn't with God himself. My relationship is with his blessings. Because Jonah, too, is almost entirely a prayer, it affords us an opportunity to examine our own prayer lives. What does yours look like? Do you have long stretches of private prayer where you're not asking God to do something for you? But instead, you're praising him for who he is and the kind of God he's shown himself to be through his word to us. Do you have some sweet times of prayer where you're more consumed with praising God for what he has already done in human history than for trying to get him to do something more? Let me just offer some suggestions on um, some practical ways to develop a rich prayer life. I have found it exceedingly helpful to write out my prayers, to keep a prayer journal and write them out. It's not less spiritual to write them out. We've got plenty of examples of them here. What it affords me the opportunity to do is to look back and take a look at how I've prayed with this God. How quick was I to jump to my list To what extent did I just pause and bask in who he is? Write out your prayers. Keep a prayer journal. Second, use each statement of the Lord's Prayer as a category for prayer. You know, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, oftentimes it's, it's a recitation, but I think we miss the point. When Jesus was teaching us to pray this way, yeah, he probably had in part recite this, but more than that, he is setting us a template for prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Just pause. 
What is that petition asking for? It's asking for God's name to be made holy. Where? In all the earth. His name to be revered, to be lifted up, to become majestic in the eyes of those who look upon it. Start your prayer that, that way. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom, God, establish your kingdom. Where? On this earth. That's going to take you all over the world in your prayer life. Starting with the categories of each, uh, each statement within the Lord's Prayer prevents us from jumping right to my list. I'll get to that. Give us this day our daily bread. We'll get to that. But not before praying big. Third, use the Psalms. Use the Psalms. There's an entire prayer book right there for you. Write out the Psalms as one of your own prayers. Work through one a day. Maybe after you've done that, go through each Psalm. See if you can summarize the gist of the Psalm in your own words and then pray that. By doing it this way, I think we afford ourselves an opportunity to cultivate a prayer life that's much richer than probably many of us have. Wherein when we approach God, the first thing that comes out of our mouths is something that we need him to do for us. Third and finally, Jesus' way with religious rebels. There's one other aspect to Jonah's prayer that requires attention here. In verse eight, chapter two, the middle of Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, he says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Who's he thinking about? Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Given what chapter 1 says, given what chapter 3 says and chapter 4 says, it seems as though he's thinking about Ninevites, maybe the sailors too. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. That's not exactly a, a nice prayer. He's not really interceding for them. In fact, it gets a little bit worse. That phrase, those who cling to worthless idols, Jonah actually takes from Psalm 31, verse 6. Look at what this says. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. He conveniently omits the first two words in his prayer, but does he know how the rest of that verse goes? He's got the rest of it down. Nothing has changed in Jonah's attitude toward those who believe and behave differently than he does. Nothing's changed. In Jonah's mind, he still has a category reserved for those people. Here's what I want to show you. Jonah is quoting in this verse, Psalm 31, verse 6, in this prayer condemning outsiders. But look at Psalm 31, verse 5, the verse before it. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Sound familiar? The words Jesus prayed on the cross. So Jonah uses Psalm 31 to condemn those who believe and behave differently than he does. 
Jesus uses Psalm 31 in saving those who believe and behave differently than he does. Jonah is suffering for the consequences of his own sin, and he's using Psalm 31 to pray for his own well-being. Jesus is suffering for the consequences of our sin, and he's using Psalm 31 to pray for our well-being. The prayer Jonah prays comes from a heart that sees God as a means to a selfish end. The prayer Jesus prays comes from a heart fully devoted to another's focused end. I wouldn't doubt at all if one of the many things Jesus was accomplishing when he uttered those words, into your hands I commit my spirit, he was begging us to go digging into the Old Testament to see that he is setting himself up as a foil to Jonah. Look at how Jonah has used Psalm 31. Now look at how Jesus has used Psalm 31. In American Christianity, sometimes we want a sermon that gives us something to do when we walk out the door. And very often the text of Scripture calls us to do something, but I don't ever want to give you something to do without first trying to get you to stand in awe of Christ. Because if I give you something to do, if I give you a list of things to do, but I don't, I don't cause you to stand in awe of Christ, then you're going to run out of fuel quickly as you try to do all this stuff. Only a heart that's truly jaw-dropped at Jesus can sustain obedience to him. Only a heart truly jaw-dropped at Jesus will do stuff with the right heart motivation. Yes, this text of Scripture encourages us to look at our lives to see to what extent we have these religious tendencies to, to identify them and to confess them. Yes, the text is encouraging us to examine our prayer lives, to see to what extent we've married God for his money. But the text is also begging us to see who Jesus is and to respond to him in love and obedience. It's begging us to stand in awe of him. Imagine being introduced to someone you've admired for a very long time. Maybe someone you've hero-worshipped. The day has come. You finally get to meet your hero. And to your embarrassment, you discover that you're trembling. And when you try to talk to your hero, you're out of breath. What's going on? Well, you're, you're not afraid because of you know, you're afraid that your hero's going to hurt you or, or cause harm to you in some way. You're responding this way because you're in a state of awe. You're trembling and you're out of breath because you're afraid of saying something or doing something that's inappropriate for the occasion and the moment. You're in awe of your hero. Every text of Scripture points to Jesus, but it doesn't do it just to be cute or intellectually interesting. It points to Jesus in order to paint a full-orbed picture of who he is that leaves us trembling in awe of him. And that's true of this text. 
While Jonah heaps condemnation on those who believe and behave differently than he does, Jesus is dying for people who believe and behave differently than he does. While Jonah prays for his own well-being, Jesus prays for the glory of God in your well-being. While Jonah is suffering through the consequences of his own sin, Jesus is suffering for the consequences of our sin. Does that leave you jaw-dropped at Jesus? Does it move you to stand in awe of Christ? It's my prayer that it does. Because only a heart that stands in awe of Christ will be willing to sacrifice comfort for the good of those who believe and behave differently than we do. Only a heart that stands in awe of Christ will be willing to reach out to those who believe and behave differently than we do. The gospel's not just for knowing. It's for doing. Let's pray. Jesus, like Jonah, we deserve to suffer for the consequences of our sin. But instead, we get good news. News that you lived the perfect life we could never live and news that you die in our place the death we rightly deserved. In that moment on the cross, Jesus, as you experienced the apex of this spiritual, relational, and physical torture, you could have used your final breath to condemn us. But instead, you chose to stay there for us. To secure for us our salvation. To bring us to yourself. So, Lord, I pray that that would grip our hearts. That it would cause us to stand jaw-dropped at you. And that we would respond to this awe we have of you by willing, being willing to reach out to those who believe and behave differently than we do and to do it with a heart pure in its motivation. We need your help with this. So we ask for it. The glory of, the name, of your name we pray. Amen. Not a hymn who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.